0: Matthew chapter 1, please turn in your Bibles. Uh, yesterday we were able to partake as the, uh, the men in our, our annual Chili Bowl, and so a number of us um, played flag football. Uh, yesterday afternoon, and then finished off with some chili, and um, it was a it was a good day, beautiful weather, uh, but I'm exhausted. And uh, I was telling one of our members, you know, from age 20 to 29, you go out and you play to win. From age 30 to 39, you go out to have a good time, and 40 plus, you just hope you don't get hurt, you know. And so he texted me back and said, "What about 60 plus?" I said, "You're risking it all, risking it all." <laughs> so. So I was reading through my notes before the service this morning, and um, I, was, I was like, man, I'm falling asleep. So I, I hope to stay awake for the entirety of the, uh, the sermon. And if not, we'll just pick up uh, where we were uh, next week in our time together. So Matthew chapter 1. And now you'll see like, why I was falling asleep, because we're starting with the genealogy of Christ this morning, so that's, uh, that might have something to do with it. Um, but uh, Matthew chapter 1, let's read the first 17 verses together, and then we'll begin, our, uh, we'll begin our study of God's Word together. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the King. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam and Rehoboam the father of Abijah and Abijah, the father of Asaph and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham and Jotham, the father of Ahaz and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of uh, Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of, man, I didn't practice this one. We'll go with Abweed, <laughs> And Abweed the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eluid, and Eluid, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful to be gathered this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's our desire that our knowledge of the word would increase and our hearts uh, would increase in affection uh, affection affection for you. And so help us, we pray, um, as we consider the truths before us, uh, to know you better and love you more. For it's in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Well, last week we began by introducing uh, the book of Matthew as we began our sermon series here in, uh, in this gospel. And a number of things we considered were the author of the book, the recipients of the book, the date, the structure, the purpose, uh, among other things. And I'm not going to take the time this morning to review everything we considered last week, uh, but there are three things that I want to recall to your attention that will be important for our study this morning through these first 17 verses. First of all, I want you to remember that the Gospels were not intended to be chronological or historical biographies of the life and ministry of Jesus. Certainly at parts they are arranged chronologically, and and certainly they contain historical details of Jesus. But more specifically, the Gospels, each Gospel was written with a purpose, and then the Gospels are arranged, within each Gospel, they're arranged with a particular structure, a careful structure, to achieve the purpose of that particular author. So remembering this will be important as we walk through the book, but it will be especially important this morning as we walk through this genealogy because Matthew has recorded this genealogy for us with a specific purpose in mind. And so we keep that in mind. It will help us to understand uh, why this genealogy is recorded here. Secondly, I want to remind us uh, of Matthew's purpose in recording this gospel. Matthew's goal, as we stated last week, is to present Jesus as the promised king of Israel who would fulfill all that was spoken of him in the Old Testament. And so this is also an aspect in in which this genealogy is, 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 is important because it relates to Matthew's purpose in presenting Jesus as king. Thirdly, we need to remember Matthew's audience. Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish, And this shapes much of what he records in this book and also relates to why he presents to us this genealogy here. And so in this way, Matthew's gospel differs from the other three gospels because of the particularly Jewish flavor that we have before us. Now, if you keep those things in mind, those three thoughts, then I think they'll prove helpful as we begin our study this morning here in the genealogy of Jesus. So this morning we're considering verses 1 to 17 together. And I know that this seems like an odd way to begin a book. So let's just imagine you're at Barnes & Noble, and uh, you pick this book up off the shelf, shelf, the, the book of Matthew, and you start to flip through the first few pages to see if you're interested in purchasing this book. And it starts with a genealogy, and so your thought is to put it back on the shelf and to think, I can always get this one from the library if I, really want to, uh, if I really want to read it. And that's some of how we might think about the beginning of Matthew. But let me submit to you, if we remember Matthew's audience, that they're primarily a Jewish audience, and you remember the high priority that, that the Jews place on geneal- genealogical records, and if you remember Matthew's purpose to present Jesus as as the king, well then you'll find this genealogy more interesting and helpful as, as we work through it. And that's been the case in, in my study of it, uh, as to find it uh, much more beneficial than I had originally anticipated as we remember the, the, the reason why Matthew records it. Now before getting into this genealogy, we need to sort of step back a little bit and understand some things about genealogies in general in the scriptures. First of all, remember this, that the genealogies of Scripture, they are important. The early church, uh, they suffered from the problem of overemphasizing the genealogies in Scripture. So you'll remember in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, Paul's writing to Timothy to correct some of the errors that exist in this church. And one of the errors was that they were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, Paul says. We face the opposite problem today, and that is probably overlooking the genealogies. So who among us, as we've gone through our Bible reading plan, have not sort of just skipped through the genealogies in order to get to the more uh, applicable sections? But we have to remember that they are inspired by God, and they are profitable for our spiritual lives. You know, I thought about maybe doing a series, uh, as we began this series, just in order to show you how important the genealogies are, just doing one sermon on each individual uh, in, the, in the genealogies. I thought that would be a good way to go, but I guess wisdom prevailed, and that's not how we'll approach, uh, approach this series. Uh, the second thing we want to note in, in terms of genealogies in general is that there are 25 genealogies in the Old Testament. There are only two genealogies in the New Testament. Uh, this one here in Matthew chapter 1, And then there is a similar genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3. So right right connected to the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke, you have two genealogies. And these are the only genealogies that are mentioned in the New Testament. And they both are genealogies of Jesus. Another important thing to remember is that when we read the genealogies, we need to know that the term father of does not always mean the immediate father so we read here in verse 2 that Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob. In those cases, it's, it's immediate, immediate father. But, but the term here that's used does not necessitate that it's exactly one generation to the next. Rather, the term could, could speak of a grandfather, could speak of a great-grandfather, or even further. And so you'll notice that some genealogies, they skip generations because the author has... is concerned with connecting one person to another person, not necessarily of giving a a detailed uh, genealogy of, of, of this family. So this is important to note because Matthew's genealogy, you get down to verse 17, he mentions 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the deportation, and then 14 from the deportation to Jesus. But we know from reading other portions of Scripture that Matthew skips... Certain generations within his genealogy, and perhaps this is done because he wants to give some sort of a memorization aid to help them understand the chronology from Abraham to uh, from Abraham to Jesus. And this is okay because it was understood how genealogies worked in, the, in in the in the scriptures. Lastly, in terms of looking at genealogies in general, we need to we need to understand the the differences between Matthew's genealogy of Christ and Luke's genealogy of Christ. Because if you were to to read them, uh, and if you go home this afternoon and were to read them, you would notice uh, that there are some noticeable differences. First is in terms of length. Luke traces uh, Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. Matthew traces the genealogy only back to Abraham. So there's a difference in length of these genealogies. There's also a difference in order. Luke begins with Jesus and, actually, do I have the backward? Yeah, Luke begins with Jesus and works his way backward. And Matthew begins with Abraham and works his way forward to get to Jesus. And so they're different in that regard. But most noticeable is there is a difference in content between Matthew and Luke's genealogy, especially following King David. So Matthew goes from David to Solomon and then he carries on the genealogy till he gets to Jesus. Whereas Luke goes from David to his son Nathan, and then eventually gets to Jesus. They converge for a brief moment, and then they separate again uh, all the way until they get to Joseph and Jesus. And we probably wonder why this is the case. And I'll just admit to you that we don't know for sure why the difference between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy. There are some possible options for why this is the case. It's possible that Matthew traces the line of Joseph and that Luke traces the line of Mary. Some have suggested that. Others have suggested that there are levirate marriages and adoptions that are, that are seen within the genealogies, and so that may explain the difference. But whatever the case is, we don't know the reason for the, for the differences between these two genealogies. Some have seen this as an opportunity to level critique against the New Testament to see, see, it's not historically accurate, it's not inspired because of the differences here. But it's not that there's no explanation It's just that we don't know what the explanation is, and there have been explanations that have been submitted. One helpful and and interesting point to note, and this is made by um, Michael Vlock in in his book, Uh, He Will Reign Forever. He notes this, and listen carefully to this, because I think this is really important, and I think it's very interesting. He notes this, that in all the criticism that Jesus received from the religious leaders about claiming to be the Messiah and the King of the Jews... They never once attacked or attempted to discredit Jesus' genealog- genealogical line. Okay, so they could, have, they could have attacked Jesus' genealogy because the records were kept in the temple. But there was never a question as to whether Jesus could rightfully claim to be the king in the Davidic line. I think that's a significant point as we, uh, as we consider even just talk about genealogies and some of the differences here. Okay, now that's sort of touching on genealog- genealogies in general. Let's turn our attention now to Matthew's genealogy specifically. And in order to give some a semblance of organization, because I struggled to, to find some uh, in terms of a sermon outline, let's consider three points this morning as we sort of work through uh, some truths in this, in this passage. I want us to notice, first of all, three significant titles, then secondly, I want us to notice four unlikely characters, and then lastly, I want to finish with three important lessons uh, from this passage together, all right? So three significant titles, four unlikely characters, and three important lessons. And so as we walk into this genealogy, remember from our outline last week that chapters one and two are introducing Jesus. Okay, chapters 1 and 2 are introducing Jesus. And what Matthew is doing in his introduction of chapters 1 and 2 is he is introducing Jesus and connecting Jesus to the Old Testament. Okay, so uh, he does this in chapters 1 and 2, particularly in three places. So just just as you flip with me, you'll notice these. So chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23, as he's introducing Jesus, he says in 22, and this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Immanuel. So he's introducing Jesus, but he's not just introducing Jesus. He's introducing Jesus and connecting him to, to the Old Testament. Uh, he does this again in chapter 2, verses 3 and 3 through 6, where we read in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and the assembling, all the chiefs, priests, and the scribes, and people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he quotes here from Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So again, Matthew's introducing Jesus, but he's more importantly, he's connecting him to prophecies of the Old Testament. He does this again. We won't, we won't read the passage, but he does this again in, in verse 18 of chapter 2. And he does this again in chapter 3 in verse 3. But uh, he, he's connecting Jesus to the Old Testament. Now, as we get into our passage this morning in verses 1 to 17, Matthew is again introducing Jesus and connecting him to the Old Testament. But the, the way he does it this way this time, is not to connect it to a prophecy about Jesus, but to connect it to a genealogical line beginning with Abraham. And you'll notice as the passage begins, Matthew does not mess around. He gets right into it, gets right into his purpose in verse 1, and he says this. And this is where we find our three significant titles for Christ. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, let's notice the three titles and their biblical significance. The first title he gives to Jesus is the title Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, this might be surprising, but the word Christ is not used frequently in Matthew's Gospel. Right? You read Paul's epistles and he refers to Jesus Christ all the time, and that's not the case here. And in fact, when Paul uses Christ, he's most often using the term Christ as a name for Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, he often refers to him. In Matthew's gospel, it's not used as much as a name, but as a title. Jesus the Christ. In fact, I was reading the scripture, you get to the end of verse 16 of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Okay, he is called the Christ. So it's, it's more of a title in Matthew, right? You remember Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they, they give some answers to, to the question, and then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. The Son of the Living God. And so this is a a title in Matthew, not so much a name. Now, for Matthew, the title is rich with biblical significance that connects back to the Old Testament. Okay, so it's the equivalent of the word anointed one or Messiah that you would see in the Old Testament. So there was a, a promised Messiah who would establish his kingdom and sit on the throne of David. This is all connected to the Davidic covenant, which we'll come to in a minute. But Psalm 2.2 2 talks about the anointed one. Daniel 9.25 and 26 talk about this anointed one. And so at the time of Jesus' birth, Israel is anticipating this anointed one or this Messiah that is going to come and establish his kingdom. And so Matthew opens his book with this title. He says, The Genealogy of Jesus the Christ here's the one that you've been waiting for. Here's the one that the Old Testament is anticipating. So the first title he gives him is Jesus the Christ. The second title Matthew gives him is Jesus the son of David. So as we come to this genealogy here, I want you to notice that the the primary focus of Matthew's genealogy is to put is to connect Jesus in the Davidic line, or to connect him with David as the king of Israel. Now, why do I note this? Because notice in verse 1, notice the order of verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there's an order change there that is, is unexpected to us, or unanticipated to us. We would expect it to go in chronological order, would we not? Because Abraham was first the son of Abraham, then he's the son of David. But Matthew, with a purpose, puts David first and foremost, because this is the purpose of his genealogy, to connect it to David. In fact, as you read further into the genealogy, you get to verse 6. In the middle of the genealogy, David is identified as David the king. Now what's interesting about that is there were several other individuals within this genealogy who were also kings, but the only one who is titled the king is, is, is David here, and, and, and Matthew is connecting Jesus to David in his kingly line. Lastly, there's a, another interesting thing about this passage, and, and numerous commentators bring this out, uh, and that's the number 14 that's mentioned in verse 17. Now I don't, I, I rarely do I ever get too interested in, in numbers and things that appear within, within passages. And a lot of people have a lot of speculation about these things. But in this case, like, I think every commentary I read brings out this particular detail. The letters of David's name, the three Hebrew letters of David's name, where they're found within the, the Hebrew Old Testament, if you were to total up their number and where they're placed within the, the Old Testament, or the, within the alphabet, they're totaled up to, to equal the number 14. And it may be that Matthew has arranged his his genealogy specifically to match this this number fourteen and the number of uh, of the total letters in uh, in Matthew's uh, or in David's in David's name. I think I just completely confused there, but um, you can read about it. It's uh, you know riveting. There's twenty page articles on. it, I'm sure you could find that would be uh, encouraging to you. But in any case, David is the focus of this genealogy. Now, the purpose of Matthew referring to Jesus as the son of David, this is really important. Listen to this. This is more than just a genealogical detail. Okay? There is significance found in this name, son of David. In fact, there were likely several individuals in Jesus' day who could claim to be in the line of David. That's not the point of what, uh, of what Matthew's of what Matthew's doing here. In calling Jesus the Son of David, this was a messianic title with major implications for Matthew's readers. See, we tend to skip right over the name Son of David. But this was a huge point with which Matthew begins the book. So let me just take you back to the Old Testament in your minds a little bit. Uh, You remember back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have recorded for us the Davidic Covenant. Or the covenant that God made with David. God made a covenant with David that one of his descendants would establish the kingdom, even more than this, that his kingdom and his throne would endure forever. So, this was, this was God's promise or covenant to, to David. So, even when the kings did not do rightly and God's desire was somewhat to like, destroy it all and like, start over again, he didn't do it because he was, he, you have these quotes where, where God was remaining faithful to the promise that he made to David that there would be a, a kingdom of stashes and his, his throne would last forever. We see something of this in, in the famous passage of Isaiah 9 6 and, and following. You remember, like we read Han- sing Handel's Messiah, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, and of his name uh, there should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Most people don't remember the next phrase in that passage in verse 7, which says this, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom... To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And he says this from this time forth and forevermore. So the people of Israel were looking for the son of David who would sit on the throne and establish his kingdom forever. So Matthew's description of Jesus as the son of David is not just. Well, he happens to be in the line of David. This is a messianic term of, of the promise being fulfilled in the Davidic covenant. So Matthew's statement here is that, that this is the one who will reign on David's throne forevermore. Now let me just show you this in a couple places of, in, in Matthew's gospel. Turn over to chapter 12 and we'll see the significance of, of this phrase, son of David. So Matthew 12, um, in, our, uh, in our scripture reading, we began in verse, in verse 22. And we'll just look at the couple, first couple of verses of this, and you catch something of this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Look at verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, notice what they say, Can this be the son of David? What are they asking there? Can this be a person who's in the genealogical line of David? No, that's not what they're asking. Can this be the Messiah that we have been looking for? Read verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub that the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. So they understood the implications of what the crowd was asking when they said, can this be the son of David? Right? Skip over to, to chapter 21 and we see a similar exchange in, uh, in the triumphal entry of, of Jesus. I think I have the right verse down, but let me just find it for a second. Verse nine, yes. Um, so this is a triumphal entry of Jesus. He comes in. It's uh, it's a very climactic uh, climactic time. Just like my point is anticlimactic now, since I couldn't find it. But um, verse eight. So most of the crowd spread their cloaks in the road, cut the branches of the trees, spread them on the road, and the crowds as Jesus coming in, they went before him and followed him with shouting, "Hosanna!" To whom? The son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now notice the exchange. And we entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said to this, This is the prophet. Later on, I can't forget the, the place, but the religious leaders, later on they became indignant Yep, verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and that the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, okay? So there's a similar exchange. When the phrase son of David is used, not just a genealogical name, but there's connection to Jesus as the promised Messiah. And the, the religious leaders, they understood the implications of what the crowds were claiming. So in introducing this, the, the book of Matthew this way, as Jesus the Christ, the son of David, Matthew is saying this, here is the promised king. Now there's one more title in this, in this section, in verse 1 of chapter 1, and that third title is the son of Abraham. Now you think, well, this is kind of a duh statement, because if he's the son of David, then he's obviously the son of... Abraham. But again, Matthew's point is not to just put Jesus in the line of David or Abraham. Matthew, we have to give him some credit here. He's chosen his words carefully, and he has mentioned this with a purpose. So when Matthew mentions Jesus as the son of Abraham, well, this takes us back to Genesis chapter 12. After God had had scattered the nations and put them in different languages, uh, he He selects one man, Abraham, to be the father of God's chosen people. And he promises Abraham that he would receive a special land and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. He also told Abraham that one of his descendants would bless all the nations. The problem, you remember, is that Abraham didn't have any children. He was 75 years old, and and his wife was also old and beyond childbearing years. But God gave them the child Isaac, and through him, his descendants would be great. We know them today as the Jewish people. But now in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, we see that that through Abraham's descendants, just how it is that all the nations will be blessed. They will be blessed by Jesus and the salvation that he provides. Okay, And this is how he introduces the book and showing how the nations are going to be blessed. And then it's interesting you get to the end of the book of Matthew, and how does it finish? Go and make disciples of all the nations because all the nations will be blessed by this son of Abraham. So Matthew's reference to Jesus as the son of Abraham is, is, is more than a historical or genealogical fact. It is a direct line back to the Old Testament to show that how Jesus will bless the nations. So as Matthew introduces the book, he introduces it this way with three significant titles. Now, Let's continue to look at the next point here, and that is four unlikely characters. Four unlikely characters. Did you notice four unlikely characters that appeared in this genealogy as we were reading them together? I tried to stop in my reading and and slow down a little bit to sort of give them emphasis. But you'll notice there are four women listed in this genealogy. It's a bit unusual, but it's not entirely unprecedented to have women involved in the genealogy. Yet it's particularly unusual to find these women mentioned in the genealogy, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, who were these women? Well, in verse 3, the first one that's mentioned there is Tamar. In Genesis 38, we have the awful, awful story of Tamar and Judah. She poses as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law Judah and then gives birth to twins because of this relationship. The next individual mentioned here is Rahab in verse 5. Famously known in Hebrews 11 and in James 2 as Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute. Because that's what she was before coming to faith in Christ and hiding the spies. You remember that she was the one who hid the spies and before she came to faith in, in, in Christ. The next person that's mentioned in verse 5 is the woman Ruth. Now you're like, well, hang on a second. I thought Ruth was an example of, of godliness. And, and she is. But notice that Ruth, though, was a Moabite, which says a lot about her in, in general. You remember that the Moabites and the Ammonites were the bitter enemies of the Israelites. And from where did they come? They came from the two children born from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. That's where the Ammonites and the Moabites came from. And so it's now this Moabite who's in the line of of Jesus the Messiah. And then lastly, in verse 6, we have a mention of the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. The, the one who, was, uh, who David coveted on the rooftop and pursued in an adulterous relationship and then finally murdered her husband, she's also in the line of Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, okay, well, why are these ladies mentioned in the genealogy here? Certainly, it wasn't necessary for Matthew to mention them, even if that was the case. He didn't have to include these details in here, but he does it, and there even seems to be an emphasis on on highlighting these individuals. Well, note, first of all, that they're part of the story, or they're part of the line, in an unlikely way. So, so, So Matthew is highlighting some of the unlikeliness here. Second, they may have all been Gentiles. If Matthew's desire is to show how the gospel moves to Gentiles, remember he's writing, he's writing 20 and 30 years after Christ has, has already uh, been crucified and risen and, and ascended to heaven. Now Matthew's writing 20 and 30 years later and he's explaining in some part why it is that the gospel is going to all these, all these nations. Well, he may be saying here, well, even all these nations are involved in the line of Jesus. Thirdly, we notice about these ladies that three of four of them, Tamar, Ruth, and Bathsheba, they are all associated with the sin of the men of Israel. And it may be that Matthew is emphasizing here God's unexpected providence in maintaining the messianic line despite the sin of these men. But we'll tie this here together here in just a, a few minutes. So there are three significant titles. There are four unlikely characters. But now let's finish with three important lessons. Three important lessons. As we begin to close our time here, I want us to consider the relevance of, of this passage for our spiritual life. Because it can be easy to think that the genealogies don't have much by way of practical help for us like i gotta go to work tomorrow and it's not gonna help me so much to know that there were four shady characters in the line of jesus so what do we learn from this particularly for our lives well i think one of the overarching things we see is that god is working in history to accomplish his purpose okay god is working in history to accomplish his purpose now, this is important because it can be tempting to believe that things are random and out of control. And I think it feels that way at times. Like of the, the numerous things going around us, whether it's culturally or politically or even just interpersonal relationships or, or whatever's going on, it can feel like things are out of control. And at any point throughout the history of this genealogy, starting with Abraham to Jesus, I think that the Israelites could have felt the same way. Like, just think about the the number of crazy things that happened between Abraham and Jesus. And all the the wars and the slavery and, and, and all these things that took place in between those. And it would be tempting for the nation of Israel to think, man, there's not really a lot of control to everything that's taking place here. But then, Jesus is born fulfills the promise of the, of, the, of the Old Testament. It's a reminder that, okay, God is moving history in a particular direction. We're reminded in, in some parts of this, this point that, that God's timetable is different from ours. Right? We, we, we trust that his sovereignty, we trust his control, we trust he's moving history to a certain point, but he doesn't always do things the, the exact way that we do them. And even Abraham tries to get ahead of God and, and, and come up with a different way to have a son, and that just created disaster. But, but God, God's timetable may, may be different, but he is moving history to accomplish its purpose, his good and gracious purpose. So, so that means that the various things that you and I experience that, that trouble us most are, are all part of God's good design They're not random. They haven't just just been accidents, but rather God in his good providence is moving all of history to his purposes. and He cares about the minute details of of our lives and he's working all those things out to accomplish our good and his glory. So that's the first encouraging thing we see from these genealogies of just how woven through this is God's providence. Secondly, the thing we see is that God can use imperfect people to accomplish his purpose. Now, this ought to be extremely evident in the genealogy because it seemed like there were way more imperfect people than there were perfect people in this genealogy. It's not just the four women that are mentioned. I mean, from Abraham on down, this is a list of imperfect people. But how many times through this genealogy did God, did these individuals mess up and, and even come close to putting God's entire plan in jeopardy. but God in his providence now continues to work things out, and he's even using these unlikely people to fulfill his purpose. You even get to the end of the book, and the gospel now is going to be taken to the Gentiles. Disciples are going to be made of all all the the nations, and who does God use to, to spread the message of Christ? He uses 11 disciples who were like infamous for for dropping the ball and messing up. And yet God is is still going to use these unlikely characters and in, in many ways you and I are here today because of these unlikely characters who have faithfully proclaimed Christ. And in the same way, God is still in the business of using imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. So he delights to use you and me to spread the gospel so that ultimately then he receives the glory because we're just jars of clay seeking to represent him well. So God can use imperfect people to accomplish his purpose. And then lastly, we see this lesson. That in this genealogy, God shows his faithfulness to his promises. The theme of of faithfulness runs throughout this genealogy. And here's why. Because long ago God had made a promise to Abraham. And not just a promise to Abraham, he made a covenant with Abraham, binding himself to the promises that he made. And, and had he not fulfilled that, then what would be in jeopardy is God's faithfulness. But he didn't just do this with Abraham. He did this with David. He made a covenant with David and bound himself in a covenant with David so that if he didn't, if he didn't accomplish this, then, then his faithfulness would be at stake in the, promise that, in the promise that he made. So when we see then that the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, what we see there is that God is remaining faithful to the promises he made in the Old Testament. Now it doesn't end there because there are promises that are still yet to come. Christ is going to return in power and glory. The kingdom's going to be established. The, the sorrows we face, the tears we shed are going to be wiped away because of the faithfulness of God. So there's still promises yet to come. So while you and I sit here in the middle of sort of the, the story between his first coming and his second coming, well, we can sit here with confidence in the faithfulness of God, that there will be a day when He comes and makes all things new. And it's these truths that are woven through this genealogy that if we just sort of passed over them, might not encourage our hearts in this way because we would miss them. But here we see God's control over history, His use of unlikely people, and a reminder That above all god is faithful to the promises that he has made now let's make this a little bit personal okay i don't know what particular things you might be facing today obviously we have a prayer sheet that we work through weekly where there are just numerous uh, needs that our brothers and sisters in christ have and that's not even that's just the ones we know about there's many, many things that we don't even know about about one another, right? So each of us, we wrestle with, with, with various trials and tribulations. And just from this simple genealogy, we're reminded, let's keep pressing on. God's faithful and will be to the end because we've seen that in Scripture and we look forward to his return. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the chance to unpack uh, this passage just in, in a little bit of detail. We're thankful for what we're reminded of as we consider this genealogy. That the events that transpire around us are not random, but you're in control. And that you delight to use unlikely characters to accomplish your purpose. We're thankful to be those unlikely characters as we seek to be faithful and live for you most of all lord we're reminded that you are faithful what you have promised will be accomplished and there is no shadow of change in you but lord you are dependable reliable the same yesterday today and forever and it's in you we place our confidence for it's in christ's name we pray